Father, studying the Bible is a joy and a privilege. There are so many places in the world where people don't even have access to a Bible. And yet we can bring our Bibles, we can use our phones, we can use our iPads, we can use our computers, and we can study the Bible together. What a privilege. And Father, we thank you. And we pray for our unfortunate friends who are in parts of the world where uh, Bible teaching is non-existent. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would bless them. I pray that you would get the gospel to them. And I pray that, 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 um, that you would raise up missionaries to take the gospel and that many people would be saved and unreached people groups would come to faith in Christ. Lord, we love you. We, we yield ourselves to you tonight. We pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts uh, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we're, we're looking at something that has so much theological importance. We, we did it last week, and we're going to finish chapter 2 tonight if we have to stay here till the cows come home, okay? We're going to finish chapter 2. Uh, but the, the thing that we're looking at that has such theological importance is the humanity of Jesus. The fact that God the Son would become a human being. And we got to understand now, if we're going to get our theological ducks in a row, we've got to understand that Jesus was fully God and he was fully man, fully human. It's interesting how the Bible focuses on this in, in uh, John chapter 1, John chapter 1. By the way, we're, we're going out of chapter 1 this week. We'll be in chapter 2 this week. So I encourage you to be here Sunday morning. John chapter 1, the Bible says in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It speaks of the deity of Jesus. Then when you come to verse 14, And the Word became what? Flesh. Jesus, God's son, became a human being and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What, what an amazing truth this is, the humanity of Jesus. Then you go, if you go over to, uh, <clears throat> to Romans chapter 1, go to Romans chapter 1 for just a moment. Again, we're talking about the humanity of Jesus. The Bible says in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Romans, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Once again, Paul is emphasizing the humanity of Jesus. And then if you look at Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2,
The Bible says in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although, look at this, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And so, listen, the scripture is absolutely chalk full of the emphasis on the deity of Jesus, but it's also chalk full on the emphasis on the humanity of Jesus, and they're both super important to our salvation. Now, we come to, to he, Hebrews chapter 2, and we've been asking a question for it seems like forever. Why did Jesus become a human? Why did Jesus take on human flesh? And so tonight we want to answer that. And I'm going to skip over some stuff real quickly because we've gone over it. But I want to answer that question, five reasons, five reasons that Jesus, God's son, became a human being. Number one, he was incarnated to recover our lost dominion. We talked about this last week. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, for he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You put all things in subjection under his feet, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not sub subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Now that's talking not about Jesus. That's talking about the human race. See, when God created Adam and Eve, he gave them dominion over everything he had created. Now, so the first reason that Jesus was incarnated was to recover our lost dominion. We looked at a bunch of scripture last week to describe that and show how that played out, how the Lord Jesus did recover our lost dominion. Now, here's a second reason that the Son of God became a human being. He was incarnated, look at this, to die for our sins. Do you understand that if Jesus had not become a human being, that the cross would have been non-existent. Our salvation would be non-existent. We would still be in our sins with absolutely no hope for eternity. But he did become a human being. And he became a human being that he might die for our sins. <clears throat> he's not crowned because he's the perfect God, man, the author mentions that he's been crowned with glory and honor because he has fulfilled his messianic task of suffering and death. You remember what Jesus said? The Son of Man has come to seek and what? Save those who are lost. That's why he came. That's his reason for coming. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, 
The Bible said, but we do not see him who was made for a little while lower, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. Notice it was because of the suffering of death that he was crowned with glory and honor. So that by the grace of God, <coughs> it, it says he might taste death for every one. Now think about this for just a moment. The incarnate son of God, Jesus who became a human being, died in your place on the cross of Calvary. He died for your sins on the cross of Calvary so that you could be saved. He was our substitute. And no truth is more basic to the gospel than this. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, for it was fitting for him for whom are are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Jesus came to save a, a bunch of people, okay? And because of his perfect obedience to the Father, Jesus, get this now, Jesus has become the one and only source of salvation. I, I hope and pray that you understand that there is not a plan B when it comes to salvation. There's only plan A. And that plan A is Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He was raised from the dead so that we might be justified before God. And he is fully, has every right to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So here's the third reason that the Son of God became a human being. He was incarnated to secure our spiritual adoption. Do you realize if you're a believer that you're adopted? You say, well, I'm not adopted. My mom and dad had me. I'm not adopted. I'm telling you, you're adopted spiritually if you're a believer. That's why Jesus became a human being. Literally, true believers become a part of God's forever family. In Hebrew chapter 2, verse 11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from, notice this, one father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now, these verses shed light on this phrase in bringing many sons to glory. Notice, he who sanctifies is Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. Those who are sanctified refers to believers. If you're a believer, Jesus has sanctified you. He has set you apart to make you holy, okay? And then all are from one Father. It refers to the fact that the plan and initiative of salvation comes from God the Father. In fact, you might put it like this. God the Father planned our salvation. God the Son provided our salvation. 
And God the Holy Spirit produces our salvation in us. It's the Holy Spirit who causes us to be born again, to become new creations in Christ. Notice this, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. This refers to the magnificent truth, amazing truth, that Jesus, the Son of God, the incarnate Son of God, seated on heaven's throne tonight, is not ashamed to call every born-again believer in this room brothers or sisters in Christ. Now, here's the $64,000 question. If he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, are we ashamed to call him Lord and Savior? Are we? I I mean, when the pressure cooker is raised to a, a real high level and you're surrounded by people who don't espouse the faith that you espouse, do you suddenly get a little silent? You see, we should never be ashamed to call the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior and our Lord and our Master and our King. And and notice this idea of adoption, this idea of brothers and sisters is spelled out really powerfully and clearly in Romans chapter 8, verse 14 to 17. Paul wrote, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God... These are, what does it say? Sons of God. If if you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, do you realize it is a sure sign that you are a child of God? You're a child of God. Because the Holy Spirit does not indwell people who are not saved, people who have not committed themselves to Christ. Verse 15, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption. You remember I I talked about the word adoption earlier. You have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. That word Abba can be translated Daddy. Daddy, do you realize that the intimacy you have with your heavenly father is supernatural and special? That you can go to your heavenly father and know that the Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that nothing can ever separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can have the worst day of your Christian life. And do you know that God the Father still loves you? He still cares about you. He wants the best for you. He wants you to receive all that that he has prepared for you in Christ Jesus. And the Bible goes on to say, but you've received a spirit of adoption as son by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are what? What does it say? Children of God. We're children of God. And if children, heirs also, notice this, if you're a child, you're an heir. 
also heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. If you remember, go back to John chapter 1 just a moment. I preached this the other day. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. But as many as received him, that's Jesus. In other words, received him means that you believe in him, that you trust him, that you commit yourself to him as your Savior and Lord. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become, what does it say? Children of God. Children of God. Even to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, you're born again by the Spirit of God. The fact is so astonishing that we, as believers, are children of God. We've been adopted into God's forever family. That in terms of sanctification, these terms also flow out of Old Testament Scripture. In fact, Hebrews 2, 12, and 13 are, are, are quotes from the Old Testament. Verse 12 saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. That's out of the Old Testament. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Now, that first citation is from Psalm 22, which is a messianic psalm. And it's a picture of Jesus saying to the Father, I will proclaim your name to my brethren, us. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And then Isaiah said, and I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Now, I, I put a little box here. I think this is so important. We hit on this this past Sunday in John chapter 1. But it's a very important principle of biblical interpretation. A lot of people have, have real struggles to interpret the Old Testament. And I think that one of the basic problems we have in interpreting the Old Testament is we don't use the right lens, L-E-N-S, the right lens. you got to have the right lens to properly interpret the Old Testament. Look at this little box here. The law and the prophets. The law and the prophets refer to the whole Old Testament. Bear witness to Christ. He is their purpose and their fulfillment. This is obvious in the Messianic Psalms and the prophetic predictions about the coming Messiah. In other instances, the Old Testament more subtly points to Christ through typological patterns and redemptive historical themes. Let's just think just a minute. Let's think about a, a, a typological uh, a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. Well, let me point out one to you that it would be hard for us to miss. Take your Bible, turn to Genesis 22. Genesis 22. Now let's say you're, you're reading the book of Genesis 
And you're reading about this guy by the name of Abraham, okay? And this guy's a special guy. I mean, there's a lot written about Abraham in the Old Testament, right? But I, I want you to look at Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. And said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take now your son. By, by the way, he, he's not talking about Ishmael. He's talking about Isaac, the son of the promise. He said, now take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Can you imagine how hard that was for Abraham? Can you imagine how hard that was for Sarah? So Abraham obeyed God and, and he saddled his donkey, he carried the wood, he, he, he took Isaac and they headed to Mount Moriah. And the Bible says in verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will... Worship and return to you. That, to me, that is amazing. You, you know what Abraham believed? Abraham believed that if God allowed him to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah, that God would raise him from the dead. Now keep that in mind as we look at this type of Jesus in the Old Testament. So Abraham took the wood offering, laid it on Isaac, his son. He took it in his hand, the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked together. And, and uh, notice, notice verse 7. Isaac said to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac said, dad, where's the, the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, notice what Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. So Abraham built an altar, laid his son on the altar. He stretched out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. But notice verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld, notice this, your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold, behind him, a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. Now, when you read that, you've got to read that through the lens of Jesus, Right? I'm telling you, whether it's Leviticus, 
whether it's uh, uh, Deuteronomy, whether it's Ezekiel, whatever it is, as you read the Old Testament, you've got to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Now look at these scriptures. I, I made a statement here in bold. The Old Testament must be read in light of its fulfillment in Christ. John 1.45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom, notice, Moses in the law and also the prophets. You got the law and the prophets. They wrote about Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In John 5, 39 and 40, Jesus made this statement. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It, it, now, here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, it is these. What's he referring to? He's referring to the Old Testament. It's the law and the prophets. But these, he said, testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. In Luke 24, 25 to 27, after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he was walking with the disciples to Emmaus. Remember, Jesus is alive. These guys don't recognize him, right? And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then notice verse 27. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning who? Concerning himself in all the scriptures, referring to the Old Testament. Dr. Al Mohler made this astute observation about the incarnation of Jesus. He said, Christianity stands or falls on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. You know what's interesting? In different, at different times in history, in church history, there have been uh, conflicts about the deity of Jesus at one time and the humanity of Jesus at another time. You know what the big conflict is today? It's not his humanity. The conflict today, the thing that rouses people up today is when you call Jesus God. And so this, this thing about the humanity and the deity of Jesus, we have got to hold them in balance. If we're going to be a New Testament church, if we're going to please our Lord, if we're going to be true to the faith that's once and for all been handed down to the church, we have got to keep these two in balance. Okay, the deity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. So he said Christianity stands or falls on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. To save those who were flesh and blood, Christ himself had to become flesh and blood. To save the race of Adam, Jesus became the last Adam. In the incarnation, the eternal son of God assumed a human nature he was made of the same flesh we are made of and shared in our same experiences, yet he remained without sin. So he was fully human, but he never sinned, okay? 
Though he was the creator of all, he became hungry. He grew tired. He ate. He drank. He slept. He ached. He shared in these in all these things that all humanity knows and experiences. This is the first and one of the most fundamental truths of the gospel story. God became a man. He became like us, end quote. What a glorious truth this is. So why did the son of God become a human being? Well, number one, to recover our lost dominion. Number two, to die for our sins. Number three, to secure our spiritual adoption. And number four, to defeat our fierce enemies. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, look at the first part of verse 14. It says, therefore, since the children, that's us, okay? That's us. Since the children share in flesh and blood. The word share comes from the Greek word koinonia. It means to have fellowship, to have communion, to have partnership. It involves having something in common with others. Listen. All human beings, all human beings have flesh and blood. It is our common nature. Okay. Now look at the the next part of that verse. He himself, that's a very intensive way they say it in the Greek language. He himself likewise also partook of the same. Now that, that, that word partook has to do with taking hold of something that is not natural. We, by nature, are flesh and blood. That's who we are. The Son of God was not, by nature, flesh and blood. Now, you do realize that in eternity, before Jesus was incarnated through the virgin womb of Mary, Jesus was just fully God. He was not fully man. He did not become fully man until he was given birth by the virgin Mary, okay? Now, look at this. We by nature are flesh, but the Son of God was not. Yet he added to himself our nature in order that he might die in our place and that we might take hold of the divine nature uh, that did not belong to us. Here's how Peter described it. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 to 4. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our, of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything, everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Now look at this. So that by them, you, now that's you in this room, that's you watching live stream who are believers, every believer, so that every believer may become partakers of the divine nature. 
Now, that does not mean we're gods. That's not what it's talking about. But we partake of the benefits of the Lord Jesus Christ and his divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, now what are these two great enemies that are mentioned here in verse 14? Well, there's two of them, death and the devil. Death and the devil. Look at, look at what it says in verse 14 again, that through death, he, that's Jesus, might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Now you might naturally wonder how the devil holds the power of death. You say, Pastor, I thought God was sovereign. I thought God was in control of everything. Well, he is, absolutely. But there's a reason that the devil is called the little g God of this world. It's in the New Testament. The little g God of this world. Not the capital G God of this world, but the little g God of this world. Remember we talked about how humanity lost its dominion. Well, who, who picked up the slack? The devil did, didn't he? The devil picked up the slack. Now notice this, Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world. Who was that one man? Adam. I want you to notice that the Bible does not lay the guilt of the human race on Eve. The Bible lays the guilt of the human race and the problems we have today on one person, his name was Adam. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. Look at Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God's eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So Satan introduce sin into God's perfect creation. God created a perfect world where everything was designed by God to work in perfect harmony. God created a, a world where Adam and Eve would obey him, would do exactly what it said. They would have a perfect relationship. God created a world where there would be perfect harmony between the animal kingdom and the human, human race. And God did all of that. And he, listen, here's what God did. When he created Adam and Eve and he put them in the Garden of Eden, he gave them one rule. Just one. Don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, Adam and Eve could have chosen to obey God, to do what God told them to do. But Satan showed up in the Garden of Eden and he tempted Eve. And she took that forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and she took a bite of it and then she gave it to Adam and he took a bite of it. You know what's interesting? The Bible says that Eve was tempted by the enemy but Adam just took a bite out of his own free will. The Bible doesn't say that Adam was tempted. But Eve took 
the forbidden fruit, gave it to Adam, and he took a bite. And as a result, sin and the problem of sin flowed into the human race. And everybody who's born today is born with a sin nature. Everybody. And everybody who's born with a sin nature is they also sin by their own free choice. Nobody makes them sin. They can't blame it on anybody but their own heart and their own will and their own desire. In Genesis 3, 17 to 19, we see what happened as a result. Then to Adam, he said, here's what God said to Adam. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. See, it doesn't say he listened to the voice of Satan. He listened to the voice of his wife. That's why Adam is held responsible by God for all the mess in the world today. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you saying you shall not eat from it. (coughs) Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. In other words, you're going to die. You're going to die. Satan's weapon is death. And it's an extremely powerful weapon, isn't it? Look, I, I've done a lot of funerals in my ministry. And I've seen families who are not believers who are absolutely mortified at the thought of death. And then I've done a lot of funerals where the families are believers. And their approach to death is totally different. Jesus had to experience death before he could be resurrected and thereby give us life. Listen, without the death of Christ, there would have been no resurrection of Christ. The death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is supernaturally powerful. Listen to this, infinitely more powerful than Satan's weapon of death. Jesus' death and the resurrection, death and resurrection soundly and permanently defeated both of our mortal enemies, the devil and death. And Jesus spoke these victorious words to his disciples before he was crucified. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have what? Everlasting life. Let me tell you, when Jesus made that promise to the disciples and to the world at large, Satan knew that his, his goose was cooked. Okay? Look at John 14, 19. After a little while, Jesus said, while the world... While the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. 
In other words, you're going to be resurrected from the dead too. The resurrection of Jesus provides the believer with eternal life. It is the only thing that could ever be done with it. Death is the power of Satan's dominion. And when Jesus shattered Satan's power, he also shattered his dominion. Look at verse 15. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You know, one of the reasons some people come to faith in Christ is because of their fear of death. Now, there can be a lot of reasons that they're driven to the foot of the cross and they're driven to Jesus. But the fear of death is one of those reasons that a lot of people come to Christ. Christ's victory over death and the devil has a powerful effect on the believer's life. You realize that as a born again believer, you do not have to live in constant fear of dying. You don't. L listen, we have to take the gospel. And we got to make sure we understand the gospel. And that we apply it to our lives in the, mo in, in the darkest, most difficult days of our lives. Look, I'm, I'm looking at people here and, and I've done a, a lot of funerals for people in, in this room and you lost loved ones and they stepped into eternity. And, and sometimes we, we say, well, I, I lost my husband. No, you, if he's a believer, you didn't lose him. You know where he is. I, I mean, if you believe the Bible, if you believe the gospel, I'm not saying we don't grieve. Please don't, don't walk out of here and say, pastor said we shouldn't grieve. No, you should grieve. But the Bible says this, you don't have to grieve as those who have no hope. That's right out of the scripture. Okay. The looming prospect of death should put the fear of God in those who are not believers. I guarantee you that. In Hebrews 9, 27, the Bible says, and in as much as it is, and in as much as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. You see, for somebody who's not a believer in Jesus, that fear of dying should be a, a, a very present reality in their lives. It really should. Because the Bible says that everybody's going to die. If Jesus tarries, everybody's going to die. Everybody. And after we die, if you're not a believer, according to the scripture right here, after you die as an unbeliever, then comes the judgment. And you stand before God. Can you imagine how frightening it would be to think and, and, and spend your whole life thinking, hey, I'm good. I'm good. I, I, I don't need Jesus. And then suddenly you die. I told a story Sunday about Aldous Huxley, the famous agnostic, brilliant, 
and, and he talks to a simple believer. And this believer is scared to death to talk to him because he thinks Aldous Huxley is going to cut him to shreds with his arguments. But all Aldous Huxley wanted to do, he wanted to know about this man's faith in Jesus. And this simple believer shared his testimony with Aldous Huxley. And when Aldous Huxley was finished listening to the man, he was in tears. And he said to this believer, he said, I would give my right hand to believe what you believe. Can you imagine Aldous Huxley stepping into eternity without Christ? Hey, you know people in your life who were not believers and they died. The Bible says it's appointed that a man wants to die, and then comes the judgment. But for believers, we should not live in mortal fear of death. We should not be enslaved, the Bible says here, to the fear of dying. Have you ever been in a room where a strong believer is dying? I know you have many. And like I did a, a funeral yesterday for a godly lady in our church. You know what she kept telling her family? She's been suffering for a while. She kept telling her family, I'm ready to go home. Now, she was not talking about her brick and mortar home. She was talking about her eternal home. So I'm ready to go home. You, you see, I came across this little statement. Suffering has an expiration date. It does. And one day is going to come to an end. And when you see a real strong believer who loved Jesus from the top of their head to the bottom of their feet, and they're approaching death, there's no fear. There's no fear. They're ready to go. That's the way all, listen, the Bible, this is not Chuck Herring's idea. This is in the Bible. It says that we are free. Jesus has freed us from slavery to the fear of death. Are you free tonight? Are you free? You say, well, pastor, I'm pretty young. Do you realize that I've done funerals for everything from babies to elderly people? The Bible says our life is like a vapor. It's here one moment, it's gone the next. And we have to be ready at every moment that we have a breath in our body. We've got to be ready to step into eternity. In John 5, 24, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has what? Has eternal life. Can you take the word of Jesus 
Can you believe the promise of Jesus? He said, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment. Aren't you glad of that? Does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death <coughs> into life. Now that's good. That's good stuff. Now, <coughs> believers will go through the Bema Seat judgment. But the Bema Seat judgment is not to determine your eternal uh, destiny. It's to determine your rewards and your responsibilities in the kingdom of heaven. But those who are not believers go through the white throne judgment. And they will be separated from God for all of eternity in a place called hell. Look, look at 2 Corinthians 5, 8. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. The, the, I preached this text yesterday in the funeral for that dear godly lady. And then at the graveside. We, we, have, you ever been a, in a funeral procession and they go about 18 miles an hour? Seriously? And you go all the way from Carville First Baptist Church all the way to Whitten Road to the, the funeral home right there on Whitten Road. Now, you, you don't stop, but you're going 18 miles an hour, okay? And, and we got there, and, and we unloaded, and we got everything ready at the graveside, and the family was sitting here before me, and, and, and this is what I read to them. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 57. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written. Man, I, I, I really stressed this yesterday at the graveside. Death, our mortal enemy, is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is a law. But I love verse 57. Look at it. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, my goodness. You, you know, there was a time in church history when believers were not so attached to this world. And there was a time in church history that when believers died, it was a celebration. There, there was a, the, the order of service yesterday 
for this dear lady. The title was A Celebration of Life. It ought to be a celebration. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 16 real quick. I got to finish here. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels. That's not why Jesus came. He didn't come to help angels. He came to help human beings. Okay? But he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Human beings. Indeed, Christ is the white hot center of God's purpose and plan for humanity. Moeller said that. So why did the Son of God become a human being? Number one, to recover our lost dominion. Number two, to die for our sins. Number two, to secure our spiritual adoption. Number, number four, to defeat our fierce enemies. Now, here's the fifth reason. Number five, to become our high priest. Boy, I'm telling you, the idea of Jesus being a high priest is found throughout the book of Hebrews. And we're going to really dig into that one. In verse 17 and 18, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. In other words, here again, Jesus, the Son of God, had to become human for all this to occur so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, to satisfy the holiness of God. <coughs> the wrath of God for people. Verse 18, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. I love what Warren Wearsby said about these verses. He said, Jesus Christ is both merciful and faithful. Aren't you glad of that? Aren't you glad we've got a high priest who's merciful? Aren't you glad we've got a high priest who is faithful who is faithful to God and is faithful to us. He's merciful toward people and faithful toward God. He can never fail in his priestly ministries. He made the necessary sacrifice for our sins so that we might be reconciled to God. He did not need to make a sacrifice for himself because he was sinless. But what happens when we who have been saved are tempted to sin? He stands ready to help us. He was tempted when he was on the earth, but no temptation ever conquered him. Because he has defeated every enemy, he is able to give us the grace that we need to overcome temptation. I love verse 18 in the Amplified Version. In the Amplified Version, it says this, For because he himself, in his humanity, has suffered in being tempted, tested, and tried, he is able immediately, I love this, immediately to run to the cry of, assist, relieve those who are being tempted, tested, and tried, and who therefore are being exposed to suffering. <coughs> that's, that's, that's a beautiful way to put it, to run to the cry of. Listen, when you have a little baby and you got that baby monitor thing, you know, and, and you're mom and dad and you're in the bedroom and you hear that baby in, through that baby monitor, that baby starts crying, what do you do? Man, you get up immediately 
and you run to the aid of that child, right? That's the picture here. That's the picture of what Jesus does for us when we are tempted. That's what he does for us. He doesn't leave us to twist in the wind of temptation. He comes to our aid. He gives us victory. As our high priest, our Lord is able to give us grace to keep us from sinning when we are tempted. I'm so glad of that, aren't you? As our advocate, he represents us before the throne of God when we do sin and forgives us when we sincerely confess our sins to him. Man, what a high priest we've got. So why did the Son of God become a human being? He was incarnated to recover our lost dominion, to die for our sins, to secure our spiritual adoption, to defeat our fierce enemies, and to become our high priest. Listen, I know we've been belaboring this point, but I'm telling you, this is important stuff. Theologically, this is important stuff. Hey, I, you know the reason I give you these notes? I don't have to do this, by the way. I give you these notes so that you can take these and you can teach somebody else. Why, why don't you ask God to bring somebody into your life that you can teach what you're being given on Wednesday night? I encourage you to do that. Hey, listen, let's make sure that we love Jesus, that we honor him, and that we're never ashamed to call him our Savior, our Lord, and our King. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for being such a, such a good group. Thank you for your, your love for the Word of God. I, I know this is deep stuff. Man, it's good stuff, isn't it? Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the way you just teach us throughout the Word of God, Lord, that Jesus was fully God and he was fully man. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would keep that in balance as church and as Christians until the day we step into your presence. Lord, we love you. We pray you would use us for your glory and we'd never be ashamed of you. In Jesus' name, amen.